7.09 now. Is this a necessary cut or is this just small potatoes? The province saving $5 million by partially or fully closing up to 20 parks while also offering up 164 other parks for privatization. The story has made its way all the way out to Montreal where we find Concordia University economist Moshe Lander. He joins us now. Hi, Moshe. Good morning. Okay, so what say you? Is this a necessary cut or is this, does this just not make financial sense to you? This is laughable. Um, you know, the, the Alberta government ran a deficit of about, say, $6.5 billion uh, a year ago, and they're looking to try and save $5 million by shutting down 20 provincial parks. Uh, $5 million out of uh, $6 billion is one-tenth of 1%. That's like uh, somebody earning $50,000 a year trying to save 50 bucks and then sell that as, uh, as cost efficiencies, mm-hmm. right? Really, Moshe, no return on investment uh, with this move? No, I mean, you know, the reality is that they are closing down, uh, you know, the 20 smallest, uh, least visited provincial parks. But, you, you know, the vast majority of, of costs that are involved with provincial parks is, is not with the uh, recreational part. It's with the preservation and the protection part, right? The, mm-hmm. the firefighting uh, the uh, protection from invasive species, the uh, you know protection of the flora and fauna of the the provincial parks. It, it's not the campgrounds that that runs the big cost. So uh, you, you're still going to have to maintain those parks in some capacity, and you're still going to have to look after you know protecting Alberta from snakes and all of the wonderful things that that makes it such a great province. Uh, you know, another thing that makes it such a great province is the tourism that you know our parks and everything else about this great province of Alberta bring in the money that tourists bring in. So you shut down these parks, people can't go camping, they can't go wandering in much of them. So is this really going to be a benefit? No, you know, um, I, I am an Alberta resident and I'm, I'm back there every summer, uh, you know, and one of the highlights of my summer is, is visiting the national parks. And so by shutting down the provincial parks, it's not going to really scare off tourists necessarily. What it's probably going to do is divert them. And so what's going to end up happening is they're going to go towards Banff and Jasper and Waterton and they're going to overwhelm uh, what's already looking to be an overwhelmed park system nationally. And if that's the way for the provincial government to kind of thumb its nose at the federal government, as they have been for months on end, this might be another way to do it by saying, hey, you know what, we're going to close our parks, but uh, you guys take care of the mm. problem. Uh, it's not ours. Well, and maybe our neighbors to uh, the west in B.C. might see an influx as well. Uh, but it could also hit Albertans in the pocketbook because what used to be the uh, you know annual trip to whatever your favorite park is or campsite to, isn't going to happen anymore. You have to spend more to, to leave the region. Yeah, it, it could have a, an economic impact, particularly on the very small towns that uh, you know some of these smaller provincial parks are, are located around. But like I said, they, they are closing down the, the 20 smallest ones. I, I think there was one part that they were closing down that, that had less than 100 visitors uh, a year. So, you know, the economic impact is probably going to be uh, small, but the optics for sure look bad. And, and if you are in one of those small towns, and that was who the Kenny government was aggressively pursuing in, in the election, uh, you know, they're going to feel slighted here that uh, they were kind of told they were going to be protected and looked after. Uh, and, and one of the first acts is this cost-saving measure uh, that's going to directly hit the smaller towns more than, than Calgary and Edmonton, say. Get a texter in on the text line right now, Masha, saying, could it possibly be that Kenny wants third parties to take over so we don't have to pay pensions and union dues to the people who run the campgrounds and parks right now? Yeah, and, you know, if that's what he's looking to do is to contract out the, the administrative end of it, then fine. Again, we're still only talking about cost savings of $5 million mm-hmm. on a budget that runs into the billions. So 
Uh, that in itself is never a bad idea. If the private sector can do something more efficiently than the public sector can, uh, that's good news for all taxpayers. But in this case, it's, it's partly diverting attention away from the much bigger discussions, which is how do you avoid this boom and bust cycle that's plagued Alberta for almost a century now? And the idea is saying that somehow we're going to solve our budgetary issues by uh, closing down provincial parks, it, it really is avoiding the bigger discussion about over-reliance on oil and gas and not having a provincial sales tax and all of the big headline items that they really just don't want to talk about. And as of yesterday, there is a petition circulating over 4,000 signatures uh, continuing to grow. So this is not popular among the public. So you're not going to be winning any new fans anytime soon either. No, and, and that's exactly it. It, it. It's just bad optics, right? So even if you don't make use of the provincial parks, the idea that the provincial parks are going to be the ones to suffer as a means of trying to balance the budget, uh, it, it just doesn't look good. And then, then when you start to really look at the numbers and realize this isn't even going to solve the problem, it's not even going to come remotely close to solving the problem, then it really does look kind of petty on the on the part of the Kenny government as a way to try and uh, close this budgetary gap that they've inherited. Not to mention more job losses at a time when the government said that they were going to create jobs and, and you know, build this province back up again. Yeah, and that was the backbone of the, the budget, right? The the budget was pretty much kind of empty of any real concrete plans for how to deal with uh, the, the stumbling economy. And yeah, if, if one of the first things coming out of the budget is that you're going to, you know, cut... Uh, Again, it's a small number of jobs, but it is they're cutting a small number of jobs and thinking that that's the solution. It's just it's it's bad. It's bad to the the voter. It doesn't look good. And how will this make Alberta stand out? Do we compare with other provinces when it comes to upping that uh, private, uh, privately run uh, area uh, that will be in the province? Does that happen in many other areas across the nation? You know what, it, it, it's probably going to be something that we see more and more because, you know, especially now with um, yesterday's announcement of the interest rate cut, Canada's, Canada's not in good shape economically right now. So if governments are running deficits and they're looking for ways to try and balance the budget, um, the fact is that there is a, a bloated public sector. I don't know that privatizing provincial parks is going to be the solution across Canada, but they are going to start looking for efficiencies anywhere they can find it. And, you know, once Alberta starts down that path, it gives cover to all of the other provinces to say, all right, if Alberta's doing it, then they're setting the trend. We're just following what they've done. And that kind of gives them a little bit of cover to make those unpopular decisions as well and point the finger saying, it's really not our decision. It was it was decided somewhere else and we're just going to copy it. Yeah, I mean, you know, I know there are a lot of people in support of the, the cuts and getting the, the financials under control in this province, but I haven't heard anybody who's in favor of this particular move. Thanks for joining us, Masha. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Masha Lander is Concordia University economics professor. Just reading a text in here that says $5 million in the private sector equals $50,000, per year jobs for private sector. Pretty sure 50 people could maintain 20 parks. So they're saying that money could be diverted and they'd be um, covered. Uh, I think that uh, I've not heard one person say, oh, here, here, it's about time that we... Uh, changed up the parks and, and shut things down and privatized down. A, a whole portion of it. Yeah. When you're trying to to, to win <laughs> some favor, this is not the way to do it. Moshe mentioned it. A lot of these are smaller parks, but if that was the park or the campsite that you enjoyed visiting, it means a lot to you, even though it might have been a small area. You talked about that petition. Uh, more than 4,000 people have signed it. That was as of yesterday. So I'm going to find it online and see what that number is at. I suspect it's much, much higher today. It's- 609 on the morning news. Remote work improves recruitment and retention, allows businesses to attract global talent, and contributes to the happiness and productivity of 57% of Canadians. 
who are distracted at work on a regular basis. Thanks to fear surrounding the COVID-19 virus, remote work is becoming a trend. Joining us to talk about the impact is Jeremy Ashaki, CEO and co-founder of Lighthouse Labs. Good morning, Jeremy. Good morning, Andrew. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for joining us. Can you give us some insight into how uh, shifts in remote working options could permanently and positively impact the Canadian workforce? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, remote work has, like you said, it's been demonstrated uh, to be positive for both employers and employees. Um, and there's been a global trend moving towards it. But there's still 44% of companies that do not touch remote work. Um, now, some of them is for obvious reasons. I think when you're in manufacturing, I think when you're in spaces that are difficult, uh, even for us, we're an in-person school, uh, it can be really challenging. But uh, what's happening, what we generally see in other trends like this with remote is as soon as something pushes remote work to happen, it generally doesn't regress. Um, and something like the coronavirus that's kind of leaving people, even though it hasn't really come to Canada yet in full force, I think the fear of it potentially coming is leaving people very squeamish about going to work, spending time in offices, going to events. And so what you're seeing is not just in workplaces, but even conferences, things like that, um, solutions around how to deliver information, how to work remotely, how to spend time uh, at your house instead of in collective groups of people. Honestly, Jeremy, if you're stockpiling toilet paper, it's no wonder people are afraid to go to work, right? A hundred percent. Once you start putting those cans of beans in your house, those extra <laughs> cans of beans, yeah. I, I, I think not going to work seems like an obvious choice. <laughs> so is it just that, the, the, is there a reason companies don't do it? Is Are they afraid, you know, other than the obvious that you stated, but are they afraid that maybe, you know, we're sitting at home eating bonbons and watching soap operas and not working as we should? Yes, of course. And, and, and while I don't like there's been enough studies that have proven productivity actually increases um, in at least part time remote work, mm -hmm. having the option. Um, what's the, one of the challenges that that doesn't mean it's, it's good for everybody at all times. And I think bosses are com like companies in general are generally uncomfortable with what people do at home. But it's also team chemistry. It's also collaboration. When you when you sit there, I'm sure at your radio show, you two, you all can sit there, mm -hmm. talk to each other, do quick note take quick note sharing and continue moving forwards. I think there's actually a process and setup that it takes to do that well and a change of norms. And that's what I generally advise a lot of companies when they're making these moves right now, especially on a on a whim because of coronavirus. You have to go and do a little bit of research and reading on the proper norms as to how you can actually share information and communicate because it is a little bit different and it takes a little bit of adjustment. So does it take a special person or could anybody, if their work permitted them to, uh, you know, you mentioned a factory would be different, but an office job or an accountant, for example, uh, could anybody do it or does it take a certain type of person or worker? I think I think the only thing it really takes is someone who's motivated enough to do their work, uh, and I think that's that's really the only the only characteristic that really does not work with remote work is someone who just wants to leave and play hooky and pretend that they're you know doing work when they're not. Realistically, I think anybody can. If you're not a good communicator, it's definitely more challenging because what you do need to do when you're doing remote work is increase your ability to communicate through instant messaging, um, through video conferencing, through phone calls, uh, and that's not necessarily natural for everybody. So it takes a little bit of adjustment. I mean, we've heard down in the States that Twitter, the first really big company that suggested everybody work from home now, but do, do you think that will spread in the U.S.? And, and will it translate to Canada, though? I mean, we have fewer people. I don't know that the fear is as great. 
Do you think it really is going to change things for us here in our country? Well, so I'd, first of all, I'd say in the U.S. now, I think there's been now 13 major companies okay. that have kind of wow. sent people home. Seattle especially is having some real issues mm -hmm. with uh, some of the tolls that they're seeing. Uh, I will tell you at Lighthouse Labs, so we are, you know, we're a coding and data boot camp and we do part-time courses. We do corporate training. Our employees all generally like being in the space and are in the space. We are currently uh, writing our policies. We, we have a remote uh, policy, which is people can work from home one to two days a week uh, right now. We're going to be increasing that in the next uh, couple of weeks too. Okay, if, if you're able to, if it doesn't affect your job, you can take more days. And that comes from me having a wide variety of conversations with a bunch of people in our industry who are all thinking about doing the same thing. The pandemic hasn't totally hit Canada, so this is a little bit more preemptive. But actually, I think if all of a sudden it hits and we're not already a little bit more comfortable doing it, then it feels really rushed and like a scramble, and it actually probably stresses people out a lot more. It's about, it's about the fear just as much as anything, whereas if you can kind of ease into it and move towards it, it probably makes a big difference. We're, we are talking to a lot of companies who are thinking about this, and we have to think about it with our school. So we're actually in the process of, of working through how we deliver our courses a little bit more remotely if needed. Any idea on how we stack up globally as a nation when it comes to uh, work at home workers compared to other nations? Or are we basically middle of the road? Are we behind or, or are we ahead of the curve? Well, Canada is actually pretty good because of how spread out we are. Um, and don't, I mean, we have a high percentage of tech industry per capita within our country. And tech happens to be a very remote friendly industry and space. Uh, so Canada does actually quite well on that side. That being said, there's also a very conservative and traditionalist aspect of Canada. And so there's a lot of people who are a little bit more reserved on that front. And some of our more traditional industries definitely struggle in that space versus other countries that have thought about how to do this even within traditional industry. Well, thank you very much for your time and insight this morning, Jeremy. Uh, thanks so much for having me. And good luck to everyone. Uh, I hope Remote work is a positive. It's a, don't just associate it with coronavirus. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> Thank you so much. Jeremy Shackey is CEO and co-founder of Lighthouse Labs. 8.12 on the morning news with degree in hand. The job search is on. However, a new StatsCan survey uh, indicates biomedical grad students are having a tough time finding employment. In fact, in 2018, only 40% of the students obtained a job in their respective field. One researcher believes he has the answer as to why. Dr. Derek Rancourt of the University of Calgary has studied the low employment rate, and he joins us now. Good morning, Dr. Rancourt. Good morning. Dr. Rancourt, the grads know their material, but uh, you suggest they need to know more outside of their field to get employed. What are they lacking? Well, we did a survey of almost 100 uh, companies in Western Canada, uh, and what we found uh, was that uh, companies felt that um, students were missing uh, project management experience, which kind of surprised us. So that was six. That was 58% of our students, and that kind of surprised us because students do do project management. Graduate students do do project management, but me, we think maybe they don't. They don't. Um, they don't communicate it very well to their to their employers, and and they perhaps don't know the terminology the way they should if they want to work in industry. Is this specific to the biomedical grad students? What you found, doctor? I don't think so, but we didn't we didn't survey beyond biomedical companies, so we can't. I really can't answer that. But I would I would imagine that the same rule applies. Like in other words, 
students need to, when they move into into government or into industry or into, even into the not-for-profit sector, they need to know how to manage projects and they need to know the project management language. And when you say that kind of language, is this is this boiled down to a communication issue? Uh, arguably, yes, but it's also an, an awareness issue. So, so I think this is part of the problem: is that we're not making students aware uh, of the professional skills that they are developing in graduate school, and so because of that lack of awareness, they're not very good at, at selling themselves to a potential employer. Can you see why this is happening? I mean, is it a new phenomenon? Can we tie it to something, social media, something else? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think that has been a, this has been a long-standing issue. Uh, you know, the difference has been that typically, um, the, you know, students have been able to get jobs because the job market hasn't been as competitive, um, you know, but over time with the competition, you know, everybody has to now present a value proposition. And if you can't do that, then you're you're going to have difficulty getting employed. So do you think at the root uh, a curriculum change is required? Uh, yes, this is what I'm trying to champion at the University of Calgary. So I, I, teach a man, I teach a mandatory professional development course in our biomedical engineering program. And the students have actually uh, responded very positively to it. I just heard a story yesterday about a, a, a master's student who's actually uh, leaving the program because he managed to find a job. And the reason he was able to find a job is because I now make every student uh, perform an informational interview of a working professional. The intent is to actually give students some experience in talking to people outside the university, but it's also meant to, to create to help the student create a network and, and to find potential cheerleaders who might actually help them to find a job when they graduate. You know, we don't have a lot of time left, Doctor, but I wanted to ask you, because I'm curious, do you, does it kind of boil down then to these kids are very book smart, but not necessarily life smart, and maybe that's where we need to do a little more work? Absolutely. So that was the other thing that popped out in our survey, is that uh, companies want students or want employers, who employees who have customer relations experience, and clearly graduate students don't have that. So another thing that we're trying to now get students to do is more what we call stakeholder engagement. In other words, identify uh, p- people who are potentially interested in their research and actually uh, take them along for the ride, right? Get their ideas, mm-hmm. you know, pick their brains, change their project accordingly, but take them along for the ride so that by the time they're completed this study, they have people who might be interested in employing them. Well, thank you very much for your time this morning, Derek. You're we welcome. appreciate it. All right. Bye-bye. Dr. Derek Rancourt, University of Calgary researcher. 842, big announcement for a crime reporter from right here in Calgary. Global's Nancy Hickst, host of the uber-popular podcast Crime Beat, is now turning her sights on the small screen, hosting a show with the same title, and she joins us now to talk about the wild ride of turning a podcast into a TV show. Hi, Nancy. Hi, thanks so much for having me this morning. Well, thanks for joining us now that you're no a TV superstar. I know you may not, not have time for us <laughs> little people. First of all, though, let's uh, congratulations. And let's just back up and give sort of the quick Coles notes on what your podcast is about. Uh, so, you know, my goal has always been to share kind of a bi- behind-the-scenes look at the cases that I've covered over the past two-plus decades that I've uh, been covering crime. And, you know, the focus is always on sharing these stories from the perspectives of the victims and the victims' families and just really share the impact of these cases. Um, 
And so each of these cases, I kind of take you through it. I take you through the steps that I've gone through to get the information to bring you. And it's just a different way of telling these stories than, you know, the two minutes that we typically have to tell you in a, in a television news story. Mm-hmm. So the television series that is launching this Saturday is just taking it another step further. And so um, if you've listened to the podcast, definitely check out the television series as well because, um, it, you know, storytelling, it's a lot different in the podcast format. Uh, there's a, It's a lot more of a casual format, a podcast. Um, and then I share added features, added highlights. And the great thing about the series that's airing uh, beginning Saturday night is Each of the episodes will cover a different crime. Like, I'm going to share six different episodes over uh, the the span of this series. But another seven shows will be from other cases, from other global news reporters from across the country. So we're sharing a lot of stories and just uh, really getting across the impact of these cases. Well, in Nancy, it, it's a natural transition from your work uh, as a television reporter. The video is there. And, of course, across the entire nation, the video of other global reporters. So so you've got this opportunity with the existing video. It makes complete sense. And, you know, I've always wanted to do longer foreign journalism. So this, you know, doing the podcast first, it was a, a huge learning curve on how to tell the stories in this way. And, you know, I think we've really uh, come a long way. Yesterday was the one-year anniversary of the first podcast being released. And that episode was the story of Mika Jordan. And that is going to be the first episode that's released uh, on the show Saturday night at 7 on all global stations across the country. It's going to be, I'm looking forward to it because your, your stories, you, you you really know how to tell a story. I think that probably comes from all your years as being a crime reporter. Do you think, Nancy, you've gone from being a crime reporter who did podcasts to now a podcaster who is just, you know, sharing what they know? Because this has got to be, well, it is a full-time job for you, isn't it? Um, You know, I think first and foremost, I'm just a journalist and I love telling stories. And, you know, this is just another way to share those stories. I've really enjoyed the podcast platform to be able to, you know, kind of open up in a way that I wouldn't in a traditional sense, uh, you know, as a journalist. Mm -hmm. You know, I do share a few more behind the scenes things and you get a bit more of a perspective into my own life. Uh, You know, the TV series is a little bit different and it's very much a documentary television series so but these families to be able to tell the story in this longer format you know we do a lot longer interviews and they open up uh in a way that they can't for a normal two-minute news story so you know it's very rewarding to be able to share these stories because there's there's something healing for the families in having their mm-hmm. stories shared and knowing that their loved ones are making a difference. And the story of Mika Jordan, you know, that's the most listened to podcast episode that we've had so far. And so that little girl, you know, if you think about what she went through, it's just horrific. But even in her death, mm-hmm. she's making a huge impact. And it's, you know, it's awful to think that she had to go through what she did. But it's raising a lot of awareness about child abuse and, um, you know, I just think that she's making a big impact, as are her mother and stepfather, who are just so patient and so kind in being a part of this. And, mm-hmm. you know, they were a part of the pilot for the podcast, and now they're a part of the pilot for the TV series. Yep. So, you know, there's some growing pains, and I, I message them pretty much every 
other day or, yeah. <laughs> you know, because you're always trying to fine tune and you're looking for little tidbits that you need to be able to share just to paint that bigger picture. So, you know, I have to thank them for their patience with me uh, through stuff. this process. We're going to have to leave it there, Nancy. It's uh, Saturday night. What time? Seven o'clock on all local uh, global stations. Sounds so great. Perfect. Please, uh, Give it a watch. Excellent. Thank you very much. That is the host of the new Crime Beat television show, Nancy Hickst. 619 now on your Thursday morning. And last month, Access Connect and the Calgary Chamber of Commerce announced the honorees of the inaugural Calgary Influential Women in Business Awards, recognizing influential business leaders in our city. Tonight, the recipients are celebrating their big win. And joining us is the winner of the Lifetime Achievement Award, Judy Fairburn. Hi, Judy. Hi, good morning. You have a long list of accolades, boy. Uh, board of Directors for Meg Energy, Tundra Oil and Gas, Calgary Economic Development. You have done it all. What does it mean to you, Judy, to be honored for your business achievements and particularly as a woman? Um, thanks so much, Sue. It's so humbling and affirming and a real total surprise. I'm always driving change, often ahead of the curve, um, love co-founding ventures and advising CEOs as a board director and investor. And, you know, what gets me up so early, especially today, to be, speak with you, it's going to be a long day. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, I'm so committed to seeing Alberta and Calgary in particular. I was born here, um, thrive again. But, and, okay. and, you know, for me, for me, you know, we need these great opportunities that excite uh, and, and keep our and, and attract our younger generation. So I'm really proud of all of that. Yeah, the business achievements I have are great, but it's because of the brilliance of my, uh, not so because I'm brilliant on my part, because of the magic that's been unlocked by tapping into such great diverse minds out there and obviously support of family and friends, but that great diverse group of leaders I've had the pleasure to work with to drive change. So, you know, this is a great city. You guys know that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for those with big goals, a hearty work ethic and Absolutely. an open mind. Judy, why is it so important to shine the spotlight on female leaders in our city? Obviously, you don't do it for the awards, uh, but the recognition is is a good thing and a bonus. Uh, why is it important? You know, we have amazing women in this city and many who have not been visible, but they're critical to positioning us in this city for success in the 21st century, like the many women tonight. And 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 the kudos as well, the male champion. And, you know, I just read just an example. Catherine Johnson, you guys might have seen the movie Hidden Figures, mm-hmm. the black math, NASA mathematician. Brilliant movie. Mm-hmm. Brilliant movie. She just recently passed away yes. at the Admiral Age of 101. Um, I'm an engineer, too. I like math. And um, she was brilliant and absolutely integral to NASA's space success, but virtually unknown. Uh, like many of the other ma- female mathematicians. And so, you know, I love that she changed history because she had the courage to ask questions and get out of that little silo she was in. And that was critical to ensuring the safety and success of the space program. And I think we have so many Catherine Johnsons in the city, role models and those aspiring to be role models that our city's positive future. And we have to unlock their potential. So I'm so thankful to Access Connect for, for those dynamic women that put it together to make tonight's awards happen. It's going to be historic. It absolutely is. And this ahead of Sunday's International Women's Day, uh, you know, great credit to you and all of those who were the winners. And we should let everybody know so that we can spread the word about the, the great talent and the female talent we have in the city. But the winners will be profiled in the March issue of Business in Calgary magazine. And then uh, the big party, the big gala tonight at the Hyatt Regency. So congratulations and have a great night tonight, Judy. Yeah, thanks so much. And uh, just a shout out to all those women that have 
the, you have the power to make incredible things happen. You see a problem, think of it as a challenge. Turn that challenge into an opportunity and don't worry about solving it on your own. Like myself and the co-founders of 51, Shelly Alice, and all the many others around us investing in the potential of innovative female-led, co-led startups or the women that pulled Access Connect together. Uh, you know, women are integral to unlocking the next economic wave here. So thanks so much for the chance to chat this morning and uh, looking forward again to a historic evening. Thank you. That's Calgary businesswoman Judy Fairburn.